Well, I would like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 with me. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 21 this morning. If you're using the blue uh, ESV Bibles that are dispersed in the seat backs in front of you, you can find that text on page 994. And so um, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 21, we will be finishing, um, by the grace of God, our series through the book of First Timothy this morning. So we've been seeking to, to ask the question in a lot of ways, what, what does it mean for us to, to be a church? What are the things that we should prioritize, the things that we should uh, beware of? Um, and I hope that it's been a, a helpful uh, series for you. The title of the sermon this morning is um, Take yeah, take hold of life. Uh, and uh, the key words for our worshipers in training are riches, generous, and treasure. So, uh, best-selling author Annie Dillard tells of the time that she heard of a man who, after shooting an eagle from the, the sky, found the dry skull of a weasel fixed by the jaws to the bird's throat. Evidently, when the eagle attacked, the weasel bit onto the bird with determination. Such determination that even in death, it would not let go. So torn, eviscerated, the weasel refused to let go and became an airborne skull. And Dillard reflects on this, writing, I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Seize it, and let it seize you up aloft, even until your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds, and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, lessened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles." Which, believe it or not, brings us to 1 Timothy 6, 17-21. Paul instructs us in these verses how to take hold tenaciously of that which is truly life. Or to use Diller's word, to take hold of our one necessity. I hope by the end of this sermon you will be convinced, if not already, you'll be convinced of what is that one necessity and have clarity about how to take hold of it for all it is worth. If you remember leading up to this, to these verses in in 1 Timothy, Paul's overall exhortation to Timothy has been to combat the false teaching that had arisen in Ephesus there in the church um, after Paul had departed from Ephesus about four years prior to writing this letter. And up through the very first part of chapter 6, Paul uh, emphasized various things that the church needed to prioritize in its life. The church needed to prioritize sound teaching, uh, rightly ordered worship and prayer, um, godly leadership, and then good relationships with, within the church. And then in chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, Paul warns 
uh, against the love of money and the desire to be rich, something that evidently was plaguing the, the false teachers there at Ephesus. And Paul states that such a desire for riches leads many into a snare. He says, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, whereby some even wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. Which to 21st century Westerners like us, that, that should probably be a, a word of concern. It, it should raise some alarms for us. But thankfully, that isn't the final word that, that Paul speaks, nor is it the final word that Paul speaks on riches here in this letter. And Because he goes on after this in verses 11 through uh, 16, and he exhorts Timothy to, to flee such things. Right? He says, flee these cravings, lest you bring approach upon the word of God. And yet, in the text before us, particularly in verses 17 through 19, we see that having riches in itself is not a sin, provided that one uh, came by his or her riches honestly through hard work and or wisdom. He ought not to feel guilty or condemned by Paul or God for being materially well off. And so rather than telling the rich to merely get rid of all of their riches, Paul offers a word of counsel here to those who find themselves find themselves in such a position. So let's read verses 17 through 21, outline the passage and get to work. He says, "As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So as we unpack these verses this morning, I want you to notice three things with me. First, in verse 17, we see Paul's charge to the rich concerning the disposition of their hearts toward their riches. Second, in verses 18 and 19, Paul explains how that disposition should impact their living or what that disposition ought to produce in them by way of action regarding their riches. So it's what do you think and how do you feel about your riches? Moving secondly to what do you, what do, you do with them? And then third, in verses 20 and 21, Paul lays one final um, gentle charge upon dear Timothy before sending him off with a benediction. So look with me in the first place of verse 17 where we see Paul's instructions to the rich regarding the disposition of their hearts toward their riches. Paul wants Timothy to charge those, he says, who are rich in this present age. Who might that be? 
while we should acknowledge that, the, that within cultures and from culture to culture and even within one local church, there are various degrees of wealth. However, if we consider what Paul had said back up in verse 8 of chapter 6, that if we have the basic necessities of our lives provided for, which he describes in terms of uh, food and clothing, he says with those we can be content. And so at some level, Paul's definition of rich here extends to those who have their basic needs met, plus a little extra. A bar that I expect each of us in this room adequately meet. So Paul is, is talking to every single one of us here this morning, even though we could rightly say that there are different degrees of, of wealth represented even in this very room. So that's who he's talking to. What, what does he say? First, negatively, what he says is that the rich ought not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. This word haughty carries the sense of self-exaltation. The haughty or self-exalted person has set himself against God, set himself above God, set himself against God and His purposes. Riches and the influence that they buy often tempt a person to self such self-exaltation. People are used to asking, oh, what do you think we should do? And so the, the rich person it becomes self-exalted. And yet, this self-exaltation, this haughtiness, this pride, this arrogance, there's something especially sad about it. Something fairly ironic about it. Because the riches which a rich person is tempted to set his hope on are dreadfully unstable. Right? Paul says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Because this is the predicament in which the prideful person the prideful rich person finds himself. He has arrogantly placed his hope on the riches that he possesses, having forgotten that there is a great uncertainty attached to them. Consider Proverbs 23, verses 4 to 5. It says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it um, sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Riches come and riches go. And like we saw back in uh, verse 8, we cannot take a cent with us when we leave this world. And so positively, he gives this command about how we should not so much regard our riches, but maybe he, he, he gives a positive command that would set the tone or set the atmosphere of how we should think about riches. He says, don't be proud, rich person. Don't set your hope on these riches that are here today and gone tomorrow, but do set your hope on God who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. Well, first, what is, so thinking about that then, two things about this phrase at the end of verse 17. What, what does it mean to set our hope on God? And how does that relate to Paul's statement that God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy? Hope in God is something that grows out of a deep, real, well-founded conviction regarding the character 
and the promises of God. We often use the word hope in sort of a flippant way today, right? I hope I get uh, new speakers for Christmas or something like that. But that's not what hope is in the Bible. That's not what it means to set your hope on God. Hope in God is believing that God is who He says He is and that He has done what He has said He's done and that He will do what He has said He will do. Hope in God is not a pathetic clinging to some delusion that things will turn out better for us. Hope is a true, stable, firm embrace of the fact that God keeps every single one of His promises. But if your hope is in God, and you are trusting and treasuring Him above your riches, what does it mean then that you have been given by God all that you have to enjoy? One commentator writes, the enjoyments that wealth may afford are not in themselves incompatible with God. For true enjoyments have their source in Him. Right? We've, we've, we said that being rich isn't inherently sinful. Being well off isn't inherently sinful. Here's the proof. Paul says God gave you your riches so that you would enjoy them. Isn't that Isn't that wild? Do you know what Adam and Eve's sin was in the garden? Of course, most people when asked that question would say something like pride. Which is true, but how how did their pride work itself out? How did their pride cause them to view God? In short, they pridefully and wrongly came to believe that God was a miser, that He was stingy, that He was holding out on them. They believed that they deserved more than He had given them. That's what the serpent said. That's what they believed. But is that true? Was God holding out on Adam and Eve? We read in Genesis 2 that God told Adam that he may, what, surely eat of every tree in the garden with one exception. So there was one tree on the you may not eat list. How many, how many trees were on the you may eat list? Think, think seriously, in your mind, think of it, how many trees? You don't have to answer, but in your mind, come up with a number. Was it three trees? Four trees? Ten trees? A hundred? A thousand? I don't know. We don't know how many trees were in the garden. The Bible doesn't say. But I think the way that we answer that question reveals something about our hearts. If you hear that question, how many, how many trees could Adam and Eve uh, eat from? And you imagine a small handful of paltry trees that God offers to Adam? Perhaps you fall into the serpent's ancient trap. Yes, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was indeed a beautiful tree with very delicious-looking fruit. And it offered a lot. But God forbid that we would assume it was the only good-looking tree in the garden. 
God lavished options upon Adam and Eve. But they couldn't see him. They fixated on the one thing denied to them. And so are there boundaries, of course. But Paul tells us here that God has richly provided you with what you have so that you would enjoy it. God gave you stuff for your joy, my friends. So before we we start accusing Paul of just excoriating the rich and demanding that they they enter into some kind of self-inflicted poverty like so many are prone to do, we must own this fact. According to Paul, those who have become rich by honest, smart, and diligent labor, labor, they have become so by God's design for at least this purpose, that they might enjoy it. God is generous. But that brings us to our, our second point in verses 18 through 19, where Paul gives further instructions about what else the rich are to do with their riches. Don't set your hope on them. Enjoy them. But, but what else? Because enjoying our riches is not all that we are to do with them. Now, in our, our English Bibles, I think most, most translations that I've seen, we have a, there's a, a period at the end of verse 17, and verse 18 starts a, a new sentence. But in uh, Greek, the sentence just, it's just simply continues as one sort of run-on sentences they do a lot. And so the translators um, you know, tried to uh, English it up a bit for us. Um, but I think thinking, seeing this as one sentence that just continues to flow is helpful. Because it's not in any way a new thought. God provides you with everything you have richly so that you might enjoy it. But why, why else? So that you might do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. He's simply continuing the same train of thought. Enjoy your riches. Do good with them. Be rich in good works, not just in material possessions. And be generous with what you have. Sharing it with those in need. And then in verse 19, he gives a a result or the effect that this type of living will have. And it's important that Paul says this because one of the dangers of embracing God's invitation to enjoy what we have is that we end up treasuring our material possessions more than we treasure the Lord who gave them. Such is the fear expressed in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Riches there may tempt one to forget God, we're told, and say, who is the Lord? Perhaps Paul has that text in mind here. He says, yes, yes, enjoy what you have. But don't forget, your riches, your material possessions, have not been given to to you so that you may use them exclusively on yourself. He says, do good with them. In other words, set your hope on God and let the riches that He provides to you, whatever they may be, however much they may be, let those riches produce in you a life that is in line with God's own moral perfection and goodness. Then he says, be rich in good works. Paul puts a spin on the designation with which he began this paragraph. Right? He says, to those who are rich in the present age, Timothy charged them to be rich in good works. In other words, is your life, which is enriched by many material possessions, equally enriched with godly acts of love and service toward others? 
Are you wealthy in deeds or just in dollars? Well, then he says that those who possess a surplus of resources are to be generous and ready to share. And so let's ask ourselves, are we generous people? Now, in asking that question about generosity, another question inevitably comes to mind rather quickly. And it goes something like this. What is the bare minimum that I can give and still be considered a generous person? But that question frames the conversation the wrong way. Another way of asking that question would be this. How much do I get to keep for myself and still be considered a generous person? But as we see Paul say to the Macedonians in or of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which we'll come to shortly, generosity isn't looking for how can I keep more. Generosity is how can I give more. So ask yourself the question, are you regularly looking for ways that you can give more of your resources? You can give away more of what you have? Or are you looking for ways to keep as much or to spend as much as you can while still somehow finding a, lot, a way to meet, you know, to get in under the line of, of generosity? Of course, generosity doesn't mean that we give ourselves in, into poverty. Generosity doesn't mean that we view our possessions as evil or wrong or, or sinful. Right? The goal isn't to give away everything that you have so that you end up becoming poor and become a burden on others. But when we talk about generosity and being generous, we are talking about a purposed plan to live within our means, to become more effective with those means, so that we require less to survive and to thrive as time goes on. So that we can continue to give a greater percentage of our possessions away to God. And so, we'll ask the question again. Ask yourself, are, are you generous? Are you ready to share? Or do you typically view your, your income as something to spend on yourself? And only when that's done can you consider giving some of it away. I, or perhaps... Has given a por- is giving a portion of your possessions away never crossed your mind? Maybe this is the first time you've ever even had that thought. I realize this is often a, uh, this is an uncomfortable topic for, for many. Churches don't like to talk about this. It's not, you know, this isn't like the thing that I would have picked on my own just to, to talk about. But I, it is important How we think about our possessions and what we do with them is important, right? Because to whatever degree these things describe anyone here this morning, the charge that God gives to each of us is, remember, to set our hope on God and not on our stuff and to give ourselves over here as a church, Redeemer Baptist Church, to give ourselves over to a radical generosity. And by that, I mean radical. Generosity in this world 
is a radical thing, even amongst professing Christians. There's a common statistic that the average person, and I think that, that in, it's, I think it's person, it definitely includes Christians, the average person in America gives away about 2% of his or her income. Now, I want to save the tithe question for another time. Because I think we, that we can agree on this. 2% as an average is, is quite low. But rather than fixating on 2% or 10% or 25% or whatever number one thinks should meet the minimum requirements to make a generous person, I want to flip over to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for a minute and note four things that if we followed those, that would definitely make us genuinely generous people, regardless of how we think about the, the specific tithe. So, if you like, you can turn there with me for just a, a few minutes before we get back to First Timothy. So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul is clear in these two chapters that the percentage of what a person gives, while the, the amount matters, what's more important are these four items that I want to name here. Our giving must be sacrificial. We must be sacrificial with our possessions. Our giving should be joyful, our giving should be planned, and our giving should be unto the Lord. So in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For even in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So generosity for the Macedonians meant sacrifice. Their, the generosity of the Macedonians cost themselves, it cost them something. They gave according to their means and beyond. So rather than asking what, what percentage must we give in order to meet God's expectation for, for, for genera- being generous, ask ourselves this question, is what I give sacrificial? Right? Like think, do you have to live differently because of how much you give? Are there things that you simply can't do or things you can't buy or places perhaps you can't go because of how much you give? Again, we're, we're not saying you're not, we don't do anything. But does, because God does want us to enjoy what we have. So it is good to spend money. It is good to save money. But it's also good, even better, according to Jesus, it's better to... To give than to receive. So we must be sacrificial in what we give. But, but beyond that, when you make this sacrificial giving, is it joyful? The Macedonians were told here in verse 2, they had an abundance of joy. In chapter 9, verse 7, God tells us that he, he loves, what, a cheerful giver. So look, if you are giving away so much money that you find yourself aggravated at God or the church or other people 
because you feel coerced into it, then you should stop. You should get your heart reoriented toward God, establish a new level of still sacrificial and yet now joyful giving. Look with me over in chapter 9, starting verses 6 through 8. He says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So third question, right? Besides being sacrificial and joyful, our generosity should be, to some extent, planned. Impromptu giving, like impromptu prayer, is good. But what kind, but that kind of giving, impromptu giving, right? You hear of a need and boom, you're, you got your checkbook out. You're giving toward it. That giving grows best out of a heart that has planned and predetermined giving in other contexts, in other ways, right? Whatever, so whatever you give, if you're a member of Redeemer Baptist Church, whatever you give to the ministry of Redeemer Baptist Church or to missions or to other charities or individuals, is there a substantial portion of that giving that is planned beforehand, right? Have you decided ahead of time what you will give? Or do you find yourself giving haphazardly every now and then whenever it seems like you have a little extra? The truth is, if we don't plan to give, right, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. If we don't plan to give, we won't end up giving. Or we end up giving much less than we should or, or much less than we, than we could. Well, back in chapter 8, verse 5, we see the fourth thing. Our giving must be unto the Lord. Not only must it be sacrificial, not only should it be joyful, not only should it be planned, but it must be to the Lord. And I love what he wrote, writes here in verse 5. He says, and this, right, they, they begged to take part in the relief of the poor. He says, this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So is your giving to the Lord first of yourself and then of your stuff? Macedonians' giving was. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then unto the apostles. And so when you are generous, do you realize? Think about this too. When you giving to the Lord. Proverbs 19.17 Whoever is generous to the poor does what? Lends to the Lord. When you are generous to the poor, according to Proverbs 19.17, you are giving to the Lord. And so now let's ask ourselves the question a third time. Are we generous people? Well, if you are purposefully, sacrificially, joyfully giving of yourself and your possessions to the Lord, remembering that it is all ultimately for Him and to Him and unto Him, I think you can call yourself generous. Or are you fixated, though? Are you fixated on a percent? What percentage will allow me to keep most of what I have while appearing more generous than the, those two percenters out there? 
So that's the question, are we generous? Well, look at verse 19 with me then, where we see the result of such radical generosity. Joyful, sacrificial, planned generosity that keeps the Lord front and center. What's the result? Paul says that by treating our riches, back in 1 Timothy now, if we treat our riches not as something to use for ourselves forever and always and only, but as something with which we can bless other people, he says we actually store up for ourselves treasure as a good foundation for the future in order that we may take hold of that which is truly life. This calls us back to what he says, uh, said in verse 12 of chapter 6. He says there, take hold of eternal life. Here in uh, verse 19, he says, take hold of that which is truly life. And he's talking about the same thing here. And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we take hold of that which is truly life? According to Paul, we do that by embracing a radical generosity that sees others' needs as more significant than our own and places a greater priority on the life to come than on the one in this present age. So yes, God absolutely calls each and every one of us to sacrificial giving in the here and now. But wouldn't you know it? In God's economy, He has worked it out so that your generosity now not only blesses others now, not only blesses you now, but it also returns to you in the age to come. Now, right, when he says storing up a good foundation for the future, he's not talking about the year 2045 when you hope to retire. He's talking about the future with the capital F, the future where true life is found. Be generous, and what you will find is that here and forever, God will provide your every need. Those needs aren't always what we, th- we think they are. But he does provide them. And, and I want to make this point before moving on to verses 20 and 21. Our, our generosity is founded upon God's. Right? It, this whole thing began with the God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is a generous God. And his generosity is astounding Right? He, he doesn't just give us things to survive, but He richly gives us things to enjoy. But then, He calls upon us to give those things away, some of those things away, but then He promises that as we give them away, purposefully, joyfully, sacrificially, remembering that it's all to Him, He works it out in our favor in the end so that we receive, as Jesus put it in Luke 18, 29 and 30, 100-fold what we give away for the sake of the kingdom. And here and now as well. Taking hold of eternal life is not something that you have to do in the future. You can do that right now. Just like the weasel did the eagle's throat. You can take hold of eternal life by embracing a radical generosity. And so the question is, will you? Will we? Well, 
Look with me in the last place here in verses 20 and 21. And admittedly, I, I fear that I'm not doing these two verses justice by addressing them at the end of this sermon, but I, I do think that what Paul says here serves as a basic summary of all that's been said so far. And so we don't need to belabor the point by, by preaching them as a separate sermon and I, or even really addressing them at length here. I have a few comments. We'll make uh, some closing application and then we'll be done. So what he says here, his concluding words, we're, you know, the concluding words of a letter are always, always important. What, is he, what does he say here? He says, Timothy, guard the deposit. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Most simply, that's what Paul has written to him in this letter. More broadly, it's, it's, it's the gospel message. Guard the good deposit. Guard the truth, Timothy. Avoid the babbling of the false teachers who got it all wrong about money, about the law. They've got everything wrong about worship, about leadership. They, they claim this knowledge for themselves that, as we've seen over and over and over again in this letter, when you adhere to false teaching, you swerve from the faith. And so Paul says to Timothy, Guard the good deposit. It's been entrusted to you purposefully, intentionally, and you must guard it, brother. And he says, oh, Timothy, right? This term of affection. Remember, he called him his his child in the faith at the beginning of the letter, and he turns once more to name him. Oh, Timothy, guard the good deposit. Over and over again in this letter, Paul has told him, That he must esteem and maintain the integrity of the sound doctrine that Paul had taught to him in the church. He says, hold fast to what is good. Avoid and reject what is bad. Remember that for yourself and for your hearers, eternal life is at stake. And then he leaves them with a word of grace. Grace be with you. And not just you, Timothy. The you is plural. You can't see it in English, but in Greek, the you is plural. Grace be with you all. Y'all. You guys at Ephesus that I've been in some ways berating as you read this letter over Timothy's back, grace be with you. Paul loves Timothy and he loves the church at Ephesus. And he gives them a parting word of grace. Reminding Timothy, reminding the church that his work is not to be done in his own strength, but in the grace of God for him. So let me offer one thought of application here before we go to, to the table. Earlier we said that uh, how, you know, we, we need to be generous with, with what God gives us, right? So we, we're talking about voluntary loss, right? Because one of the questions about, you know, I enjoy what God's given me. How do I know if I'm making it an idol? Well, one way is, do you voluntarily lose it? Do you voluntarily give it away? But there's a second test that I want to offer to you in closing. How do you respond to involuntary loss? Voluntary loss, right, is when you give money away, give stuff away. Involuntary loss is when someone else steals it from you. Or something breaks and you have to you have to get rid of money that way right what do you do when moths rust and thieves take what you have when moths destroy thieves break in and steal 
What happens? What happens here? Do you rage and curse and spit and moan, railing against the heavens, angry that God would allow something like that to happen to you? Or do you respond with grace, humility, and trust? Do you respond like Job when everything that he possessed and his children were taken from him? Job responds, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, of course, he does so after tearing his robes and falling down on the ground to weep, but he worships. So do we respond like Job or do we respond like the woman uh, who came to Solomon, King Solomon, after her infant died? Right? Her infant dies, and what she do? She stole the child of her neighbor and said that it was her neighbor's child who died. She switched the babies. And so they go to Solomon, and this woman is to the point, he says, all right, I can't decide, I don't know, let's just split the living child in two, and you can each have half of it. The mother says, no, 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 she can have it. What does the other woman say? Where's the sword? I'll do it myself. She lost something. But since she couldn't have it, her neighbor couldn't have hers either. Do we respond like that? Friends, how how we respond in moments of loss is very important for diagnosing what's going on in our hearts. God does call us to a radical generosity that gives away much of what we possess with outright abandon. But he also calls us to an unshakable hope that clings to him through the most painful, bitter, and heart-wrenching moments that we will face in this sin-sick world. And so what about you? Where is your hope? What would you do if you woke up tomorrow morning and everything you had was gone? Your job, your home, your children. Would you curse God and die? Or would you fall to the ground and through a a flood of tears eke out a prayer of desperation and determination to acknowledge God as the supreme treasure of your life? Wherever you find yourself answering that question, Would you look to Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. We didn't read it earlier, but I'll read it now. Jesus Christ, though he was rich beyond all measure, for our sake, did what? Became poor. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. Not here and now. Not patting our wallets, but that we might take hold for all that it's worth, the eternal life that he bought for us. So will you come to him?